Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Outcasts with David, no one leaves baby in the corner, Barry, and High Chief Oompa Loompa Tim Downey. Hark! The cuckoo. The bringer of spring and good tidings. What? What's that you say? Oh. He tells of a great city buried deep in the hills, a place of great mystery and magic, they say. An Avalon, carved from the bedrock, somewhere just off the M80. Our guide. To the high adventure that awaits us is someone who, without whom, none of this would exist. She is development and executive producer at Tallship Productions, along with Ron D. Moore, and has produced some of the most wonderful and beloved shows out there. Battlestar Galactica, Electric Dreams, two of my personal favorites, and of course, the extraordinary Outlander. She is the very brilliant Meryl Davis. Hello, Meryl, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I think I might hire you as my agent. I love that intro. Thank you. So it makes me sound much more important than I am. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. You are you are that important. You might not be such a, a, a creature of the woodland glade as that, but <laughs> important none nonetheless. So, well, first off, how have you been? How's how's lockdown been treating you? Uh, I'm actually doing pretty well. I have to admit, I, I unlike most people, do not mind being homebound. Um, obviously, ready to kind of uh, go out and eat and do all those things, and, and certainly worried about people who are sick and. And everything's going on, but um, in general, keeping myself busy and, and doing well. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, as traditional on this show, you have picked a scene for us, which will be, uh, it's from season one, episode four, uh, scene four. Uh, now, normally, uh, you are indeed the person in charge of things, but today, the day, the tables, the tables have turned, and we... Mr. David Berry and myself are, are the producers. David is the zero mostel to my Gene Wilder. Very happy, very happy with that. So I warn you, um, we obviously have absolutely no idea what we're doing. So just I just want to put that right out right there, just so we're all in the same, we're all in the same boat. But, I'm very upset about that. I thought I get to choose parts. I think I'm so used to holding on to that. Well, that's exactly what you are going to do. Because I have, I, as producer now, I am going to delegate that to, to you. Um, and we are also going to create a lot of high production value with this. Um, so seemingly out of nothing, as there is pretty pretty much nothing in this room that is useful, but I have created certain little things. Uh, so we're going to do a few little sound effects every now and then, something to look forward to. A uh, little bit of music, we'll underscore, it's going to be great. Soundscapes, really get the scene, really get the scene a lift. And maybe even a, maybe even a song or two, I'm just throwing it out there. Um, but first of all, yes, so if you could just give us a little bit about why you chose this particular scene? Well, I'll be honest. I've listened to a few episodes of the podcast and knew what to expect and thought I'd go back to the beginning since I felt like so many people chose from four or five seasons. Um, so started in season one and honestly got too tired to go back to episode four. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I always have loved this scene. Um, uh, it's funny and um, obviously not as a writer myself nor an actor. Um, I wasn't going to choose a scene um, depending on those two things. So um, it's kind of hard to pick your favorite. It's like picking a favorite child. So this one always makes me laugh. It has three roles, which I thought was perfect. So that's that's about the, all of the thought that went into it. We're learning here. We're learning. And that's how a producer chooses this time. <laughs> we'll know from next time. You get too tired to go past four episodes. <laughs> it's the honesty. It's the honesty I, I, uh, I like. Uh, so how are we going to divvy up? So we've got a Claire, we have uh, Rupert and Angus. So who do you see in those roles? Well, I'm obviously going to be American Claire because I'm not even going to attempt to do a, an accent. I'm rubbish. Um, 
I'm going to, it's hard, Rupert, Angus. I mean, I'm going to go Tim. I'm going to give you Angus and uh, Rupert. David is all yours. Great. Awesome. Awesome. Now, David, would you, uh, as is, you know, it's the beginning, it's the beginning of a scene. Do you want to, do you want to give us a little song? I can happily lead with maybe like the last, the last verse of Skyboat's song. You can happily follow my lead. Oh dear. Okay. Okay. Well, David I mean, is a singer. David, David's going to blow this out of the water. So do you, do you know the lyrics? We should, uh, well, let's find out. I actually don't think I do. Let's, let's oh. um, well, sing me a song of a lass that is gone. Right. No, no, let's paint the picture. We've got to get a big, big production value here, right? The credits come up. Yeah. Set, set my mood. Get All me right. going. A little bit of sky, a little bit of skyboat just to lead right. you in. Okay. Yeah, okay. Are you ready for my lead? Yeah, go. Okay, ready? Yeah. Sing me a song of a lass that is gone. Say, could that last be some merry of soul? She sailed on a day over the sea to sky fade in. Exterior temporary gathering encampment continuous as Claire and her watchman approach a courtier. She notices a Rubenesque woman, 30s ish, cooking at a campfire. So I got campfire sound. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's great. The woman's periodic glances at, of all people, Angus. The first catches Claire's attention, or is she looking at Rupert? Claire's not quite sure. She pulls up short and wheels round to face Rupert and Angus. Can I just, before I start, say quickly, apologies to Katrina Bell for this (laughs) rendition, and apologies to Matt Roberts, who wrote this lovely scene. I'm about to butcher it. Please do not look, but that lovely lady stirring the kettle seems to fancy one of you. I thought that was good, actually. There's no need for apologies there. <laughs> Great. You have to say that. No, I don't. I don't really. <laughs> well, I am the producer. I could fire you here. But... <laughs> That's true. Which you, should, which you should. There's a reason I'm behind the camera, and you're about to find out why. Okay. All right. Sorry, Tim. No problem. They immediately look over Claire's shoulder. I asked you not to look. I'm Rupert, right? <laughs> yes. Okay, great. Good start. <laughs> this is a multi-million dollar here. Adding production value here. Aye, she's a paita, that one. Rupert begins to take a step forward excitedly. Okay, here we go. Well, I'll just be settling my cock to roost in that tonight. But he's instantly thwarted by Angus's arm. Nisa fast. Mm. We said every man for himself during the gathering. Aye, we did. But you ken how much I fancy a hen with a bit of meat. Who does not? Seeing a way to engender goodwill, Claire kneels, picks up a twig from the ground and snaps it in two pieces. <laughs> well, the only yeah. thing, uh, it's the only thing I had. It's the closest yeah. to wood. Mm-hmm. Um, she's careful with the next. Never quite sure how to read angus he's nitroglycerine too much jostling and he might explode um gentlemen may i be of assistance here claire holds out her hand displaying two sticks i realize i'm a captive audience of sorts but i'd rather not be subjected to another one of your inane debates if you please draw sticks long one gets to apply their charms on the woman there the other well i guess we'll have the pleasure of accompanying me Rupert and Angus share a look and in some unspoken language agree that it's actually not a bad idea, though it pains Angus to nod in agreement. Claire turns her back and evens out the two pieces, then swings around, extending her arm. Choose. I feel like we should have some sort of like suspenseful music here, like... And then keep keep reading it. Get that big print on. Rupert is quick to the draw, snatching a piece from her closeness before Angus can even lift his hand. Sorry. Keep going. Tis all your wankin gives you that much speed of hand. It's getting more suspenseful. The twig Rupert holds has good length, but Claire reveals an even longer section in her palm, which elicits a wide smile from Angus and a growl from Rupert. I'll save you some pay. Angus is off straight away toward the woman's camps. Rupert snarls, having come out on the short end of both the draw and the joke. The seed planted, I now needed to tend to the other elements of my plan. I'll need a horse for tomorrow's hunt. The laird wants a healer along, just in case. Dun, dun, dun. 
with a grunt of reply in Gaelic. One can only imagine. End scene. Fabulous. I could just drift off. It's actually shocking that we didn't ask you two to do a duet of that lean in song. It really is. I'm I'm actually regretting that right right now. (laughs) Hey, plenty of time. Plenty of time. (laughs) Now, there are a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about what it means to be a producer. And I think many people see producers as remote, sort of shadowy figures of power and influence. Um, focus just on the money, very little involvement with the creative process. But that is not the case. That's not true. So for all the people at home, can you help us to understand your job as as a producer? I mean, I don't even understand it myself. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> I, it's one of the hardest questions um, to answer. I get asked this all the time. Um, what does a producer do? And there are so many variations on the title. And quite honestly, um, I do think that people who are line producers, as they are known, the people who deal with the scheduling and the budgets and and the hiring firing of most of your crew, um, those are the people that, to me, in my mind, are the real producers. Um, you know, I'm what they call a um, creative non-writing producer and that I don't write. Um, and most of the producers of our, on our show also are writers. Um, so... Um, it means various things. I mean, for me, I sit in on the writer's room, writing stories if I can. I, I oversee with other writers like Tony and Matt casting. I liaison with the studio and the network. Um, I, I weigh in on uh, hiring of uh, HODs um, and uh, that kind of stuff and uh, hire writers. Heads of department. Heads of department. department. Sorry, heads of department. <laughs> uh, although we, we do them call them department heads in the in the states um and uh yeah various other such duties you know i oversee marketing and licensing and publicity you you never set out to be a producer i read that you wanted to to play soccer yes yes. originally which is fascinating because that's what i wanted to do and i think from what i read you actually suffered the same injury that i suffered from (sighs) uh, which was which you, you you did you did a knee in Yes, yes. I was um, actually, I did want to be, I didn't want to grow up wanting to be a soccer player. I have played soccer all my life. I started when I was five um, and loved it. But I'm old enough that, uh, you know, when I was going to college, they didn't really have that many soccer programs and certainly didn't have a professional league in the States. Um, So I just went to college, played all four years, started working at Star Trek, and then kind of after five or six years there, didn't know what I wanted to do. And they had started a women's professional league. So I thought, you know what, before I'm too old to get out of my chair, I'm going to train to play soccer, moved home, much to the chagrin of uh, all of these young whippersnappers I was training with who were like, wait a second, you had a job in Los Angeles, you were living on your own, and now you're living at home again? They're like, we don't get it. Um, and then I trained for about a year and then, um, got invited to try out for the team in Boston and two days before the tryout, um, before they were going to fly me out, I blew up mini. Oh, wait, what position, what position were you? I was a four, a forward. I don't know what Tim was. Ah, I was, I was goalkeeper, goalkeeper. Ah. And I came out, uh, it was, it was a long ball, my injury, long ball, (laughs) run out, slid down. Uh, and then, uh, the guy who, the forward who was running towards me. Uh, decided I'm not having any of that, and then slid his heel into my knee and and cracked my Ouch. cracked my knee. It was a uh, yeah, it was like a, a he was an, an it was an Arsenal player. I think that says it all. Oh man! Uh, so uh, yeah, very unpleasant. And that was the end of that. Yeah. Well, we could almost get eleven. We should start an, an Outlander soccer team. I think there's yes. a few other cast members that play. Um, I'll I'll be a general manager. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll, I don't want to throw any knees out. Are you athletic at all, David? I will take no offense at that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am. I honestly don't know. That wasn't actually a diss. It, it was just a, out of curiosity. I would have no idea. I'm a bit, I'm a bit sensitive, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, if it were up to me, I, I'd be starting a basketball team, not not a soccer team, oh. um, or a football team. Um, yes. For just to talk two parlances there, Tim. Um, soccer, yeah. soccer, football. I know it's. Uh, a tricky one it's a very touchy subject in this country it's football no other word it doesn't matter what else you call it people go I don't know what it's like you know what it is but you're just gonna refuse to acknowledge it in this country it's football simple as that jumpers for goalposts things like yes that's football no I never had like a, a heroic like 
tale of how I wanted to be a, a professional athlete and then some tragic accident stopped me from my dreams. I, I, uh, I wish that were the case. I wish I had that, but, uh, no, I just a casual, casual sportsman, I guess you know, I'd pick up. And that's why I'm trying to have a casual game of outlander soccer. It's, you know, it's not getting too serious. You guys yep, taking exactly. everything too serious here. That's why I ended up with no slide tackling yeah, for me. None, none of that. And I can see it being quite a friendly game between uh, the English and the Scots. I can't see any animosity whatsoever with that. None at all. I believe they were just kind of really just, you know, have a, have a bit of fun with it. Mm. <laughs> so you bust your knee and you're thinking, I've, I've probably got to go and do something else now. So what takes you from, I'm very happy with this one, what takes you from one pitch to end up in another pitch. Mm. I was quite very happy with that. Very happy nice with that. Nice segue. That was so, Thank you. I'm very pleased. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that middle period between joining uh, Ron and Toolship, how did you get from, you've just done a little bit on Star Trek, you've come away from that, so how did you get back into it? How did you think, right, okay, I'm going to pursue this avenue now? Uh, well, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to obviously get back into television because, uh, you know, I really loved it when I'd started there. And I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to produce, but I, I kind of knew just because I'm very nosy and I, I like sticking my hands in a lot of different uh, things. And um, and I ran into Ron at a party randomly and uh, I had worked for Ron. Some people don't know this, but I'd worked for Ron for three months at back at Star Trek. And this was when Ron was not a showrunner. He was um, lowered down on the on the pole, totem pole, and um, he was great. I just had moved on to work for the showrunner at Star Trek and, and a couple other people. And when I ran into him at a party, he was like, you know, my um, assistant is leaving. Do you want to come work with me? I'm working on a show called Carnival. At can, I, can I hold the phone for one second? got to ask you, like, how do you run into Ron at a party? <laughs> well... What parties are these? Are just a Hollywood party? Well, it was, and I, I'm not okay. necessarily a Hollywood partier, but we knew a lot of the same people at Star Trek. So it was a uh-huh. Star Trek party. So right. um, so it ran into him there. And um, I said, I'd love to come work for you, but I've done the assistant thing. I, I put in my years there. I'm ready to kind of move on and progress. And, and he said, come with me. We'll figure it out. And and we did. And you know, now we're producing partners. And we did Battlestar Galactica and um, and then various other pilots and and ended up here at, at Outlanderville. What sort of common interests do you and Ron share? What makes you a good partnership? So, I mean, I think you've spoken about how one does what the other one can't. Yes, yeah. Uh, um, and vice versa. <laughs> I don't know if the other one can't, but uh, yeah. it's, it's more what does Ron not want to do? Um, that's kind of how okay. it started out. Um, you know, Ron, um, there are certain things that he's so good at, obviously, writing, he loves editing, things like that. Um, you know, he loves everyone, but he's not necessarily going to want to talk to the studio network on a daily basis when he can be writing. He's, he doesn't, you know, necessarily weigh in too much on casting, marketing, publicity, those kind of things. So, um, I just kind of, kind of picked up the slack there and started doing those things and found that we had a good balance there. And I think we share a lot of the same sensibilities. We have similar sense of humor and, and kind of go for the same things in stories, but also have enough differences that, um, for instance, Outlander came from that, you know, it was something I was really passionate about. Um, it would not have been something he would have picked up on his own. Um, but he is really amazing with strong female characters and just strong drama and characters in general. So I knew he would love it. So it was, a good, Outlander, I think is a perfect example of a good pairing between the two of us. I think that's the secret of a good relationship, especially in, in business, you know, or in even just, uh, having, having a little podcast where you, where you chat um it's the i disagree camaraderie disagree disagree you disagree you see there you go there you go you see straight away he's in there i knew it knew it well i'd like to actually know how this partnership evolved i mean were you guys just sitting on set in one of those sad little tents and just said you know what podcast you and me how did this happen well, we were at a Hollywood party. Um, Ron Moore was there. <laughs> a Star and, uh, Trek party? Yeah. <laughs> Star Trek party. I didn't see that. We've never told this story. Uh, I don't know. No, we haven't. Well, please take the floor. I will jump in. Ah, well, where did we meet, uh, meet Tim? I actually can't remember. I think we, because so, uh, we'd met, we'd met a few times on Series 4, but very, very fleetingly, kind of uh, little sort of hellos at table reads. Uh, but then we, properly met you might have said hello to me and i might have ignored you i don't know i think he did that i think he did that i may have said could i just get that could i just get those wagon wheels from that craft table and he said no i think i asked you for a tea actually i said i think i asked you if you get me a coffee Uh, i think that was (laughs) that 
I flatly refused. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I think it was, it was, it was uh, season five, and it was Jocasta's wedding. And we were in those little, little white tents. And it was about three or four that were just, you know, down by the river. And uh, I think that was the first time we just kind of sat down because we were in the tent together and had a, and just had a kind of chat and things like that. And we actually um, found out that we actually have a mutual love of violin music. Um, oh. As David was saying, oh, what are you listening to on your iPhone? And you played me some violin music. And I said, oh, you should listen. You should listen to this. It's unusual because I'm not... See, look, he doesn't I'm, even care. doesn't even care, Meryl. <laughs> See? Is that what the love blossom for you, Tim, but obviously not for David? Oh, I remember the details, Meryl. <laughs> I can't believe you guys met so late. I know. I know. I'd say that every day. All those wasted... It feels like we've known each other. It feels like an old married couple. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, we were, we were ships in the night. High school sweethearts that kind of never met, broke up a prom, that kind of thing. We bicker a lot, too. Then... <laughs> well, Meryl, I did, as you said, you don't really know what a producer is, and I just wanted to help you out here because I did my own research. Believe it or not, I went to the U.S. Bureau of um, Labor and Statistics for this one, and they said wow. that the most important attributes for a movie or a TV producer are uh, talent, experience, business acumen, and the ability to deal with many different kinds of different people, importantly, under stress. And I wanted to talk about this last one for a second because I think that sounds like the real clincher, the real interesting one. The ability to deal with many different kinds of people under stress. And um, believe me, I can't think of anything more stressful than working with actors um, who don't know who they are on the best of days and play many different kinds of people for a living. And I wanted to ask you what it's like to deal with actors. I mean, I, Tim finds me difficult enough to deal with. Um, this is and, true. And we, we, actors carry, you know, a reputation for sometimes being difficult, on-set tantrums, not turning up to late on set and all that kind of stuff. I'm wondering if this is, what's your experience been with, um, with this and how have you learned to deal with actors? This feels like a loaded question that I'm almost scared to answer, but um, <laughs> but uh, I hey, will we'll, be we'll just throw a tantrum and hang out in our trailer if, if exactly, anything goes wrong. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'll be honest. I actually have been very lucky um, that I have not worked with um, many actors that I can even recall that have been difficult. I mean, I do think Ron and I traditionally on our sets do require and and like to have sets that there's mutual respect going around. You know, it's always an interesting um, balance, I think, more so between actors and writers, I would say, just because, you know, writers are writing material and actors are acting that material. And um, I think we're all very sensitive to the fact that acting is a very vulnerable profession. Um, You know, I wouldn't want in my daily life people to give me notes on what I was doing. Um, but that kind of is also our job to, you know, we know the material very well. The writers have often obviously written the material. The actors feel like they know the material very well because they're acting it and they, they have now imbued that character with their own characteristics in some ways. So I think there's always a push pull there in some ways of, um, trying to come to common ground. Cause I think at the end of the day, we all own the character. Um, I do think, you know, from actor perspective, I imagine there's an ownership there and you have to have part of that ownership to, to play that character in a way that you master it. But I think we feel that as well on the other side, the writers and, and the producers. So I think for us, it's it's trying to navigate that and making an actor feel rightly so that they are um, guardians of that character, but also trying to uh, fit in our perspective on that character as well. Um, I know that was kind of a roundabout way of act, talking about it, but I think for the most part, I've had really good luck. I mean. You treat someone with respect and hopefully you get that back. Um, and we try to create sets that are, are happy places to be. It, it does get stressful sometimes and, and tempers flare. But uh, for the most part, I have not found that we've had anyone that we've worked with that has been a unique problem. I think that would be really problematic for us if it was if it got too crazy. I don't know if that answered the question. No, it does. Tim, Tim on his, his trailer, it, it, you know, we usually have signs as Lord John Gray, um, you know, Jamie Fraser. Tim has unique problem on his door. It says unique problem. Yeah. So we all know who he is. And the door's usually torn off and it yeah. knows why. Is it yes. written on the other side of somebody else's placard? Because I find <laughs> often we reuse those. So makes people feel good. <laughs> Talking about difficult actors, I remember a, a very quick story about a, a friend of mine 
and who Sam Hewitt? No, no, it's a friend of mine, not Sam Hewitt. <laughs> not Sam Hewitt. Imagine if you suddenly go, yes, I remember that story very well. It happened <laughs> season two. He is lovely. Just put that. He is lovely. He is absolutely lovely. But yeah, so a friend of mine was on was on, was on set, and he he was young, he was young at the time, and decided to uh, go out have a bit of a big night as young actors can do. He then missed his call completely. The next day it was a six o'clock call, missed it completely. And I think he woke up at like nine to 400 missed calls, why on earth, people banging on the door going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what am I doing? And so he, uh, it took him so long that the next day he uh, bought two ice cream vans to arrive <laughs> on set to say, yeah. I'm very sorry uh-huh. um, that, that, that that happened. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 as an actor, I yearn for the day that there's an ice cream man on set. <laughs> Not if I'm hanging around for four or five hours. But, um, but yeah, so it can get quite, yeah, difficult actors can be quite strange. Yeah, but I also think from an actor perspective, I'm sure you look at us as producers, those of us who are, and that, you know, there is kind of a, I imagine, um, why are you guys telling us what to do? Um, why do you think you know the character better? I mean... I would be interested to hear from your perspective um, what how you guys find dealing with producers. Hmm. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> throwing the tables around. Well, I, Marilyn, David, I think you have a few things to say about this. I, I do. Let me get started. You just opened a whole can of worms here, Meryl. Let me get on my soapbox. <laughs> um, I think you answered it really diplomatically, and and I think, but I and I think that's part of the the whole thing. It is it is a diplomacy that you have to execute between actors and producers because sometimes it can be an us versus them mentality, and, and there is a power differential. Like obviously, the the producer has the, the ultimate say at the end of the day. But then, you know, actors like to try and flex their muscle a little bit and about ownership of, you know, who's making the calls. And I think as a show progresses and actors get more comfortable in their roles and maybe producers get more comfortable in their roles, you know, it can become even more uh, contentious about, you know, who's making the creative decisions. I think we all want to be masters of our creative destiny. And I think actors tend to indulge their creativity a little bit and we... um, we tend to think just because we're creative, that gives us um, an entitlement to make a lot of, you know, sometimes very indulgent choices about what we want to do on set or what our character wants to do. And I think it's always up to the, we always have to defer to the producer to make that referee's call at the end of the day, bring that back to soccer. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, having a bit of uh, it, someone adjudicating the, the calls. And I think problems can occur when that hierarchy is not respected. I don't, what do you think on that, Tim? Um, I, think, I think the same. I think also the actor sometimes lives in a bubble. Yeah. And the, bub- the, the actor is very much aware of what they are doing and in that moment at that time. But for the sheer scope and arc of us, where a story is going to go and the kind of grand universal world that, it, that that character sits in, um, a lot of the time the actor has absolutely no idea. So they are can be pernickety about certain little details when in the grand scheme of things go, well, actually, you can't do that because if you do that, then you don't know what will happen in episode 15 or whatever or however the character will will generate, especially with something with, I imagine, with when it's a book such as this, there is, there is the story is there, the, the, the bones are there. And so if an actor suddenly says, uh, well, actually, I don't, I don't think he is going to ride over that ridge. You go, well, if you don't ride over that ridge, then... Yeah. X or, you know, this or this is not going to happen. Or if you don't say this line in that way to that person, then the re- then it's going to have repercussions sort of later on. I also think that I imagine that one of the, the real skills of being a producer is harnessing all these creative people, harnessing the creative potential of, of actors and of a camera department of writers who have lots of ideas and then focusing them. Um, you know, sometimes you see... Uh, Actors do their best work when they're working with a producer because that producer really understands their talent or really understands that writer's talent and they know how to really get the best out of their cast and their crew and and their creators. No, I think that's true. I I think that's the role of the showrunner ultimately. You know, I mean, in that position, you want to have a person that's like your general. I mean, it's uh, the difference of, you know, wanting to follow someone into battle or not. And uh, you want to have someone who can rally everyone together because it's all about you know, the spirit on set and, and everyone having a good time. We're not, this isn't, uh, we're not curing cancer here. And I think that's important to remember. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like we are on set, but 
Um, you know, I'm the first to remind everyone and myself that um, this is actually one of the more fun things you can do in life. And, uh, and it's not at the end of the day, um, life or death. Yeah, my parents constantly remind me of that. Both <laughs> doctors, my dad's a cancer doctor. You're not can Don't worry about your problems. You're not problems. I'm a cancer doctor. But oh man, I, I want to move on to another relationship here. These stressful relationships, um, because uh, other than dealing with actors, I think another stressful relationship would be one of dealing with studios and, and networks. Another bunch of very strong personalities, and this time they can get you fired. Um, how, how do you manage that, Meryl? I'm actually hugely lucky that I love, 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 um, the people I work with. I mean, particularly at stars, Karen Bailey is my day-to-day go-to person and I absolutely adore her. And I'm not just saying that, um, she is, she is someone that I have known since the beginning who has been such a fan, such a, um, a partner to me in this journey. I, I love her and same at, at Sony starting with Chris Parnell, who, who sadly is leaving to go to Apple. I feel like he's abandoning us, but, um, he, from the get-go, was such a fan and, and uh, such a true partner and everyone at Sony and, and Stars. So that actually has been a relationship for me that's been lovely. And, and that, I find those relationships quite easy. I think the difficulty is, obviously, if they call you and they don't like someone's hairdo in dailies or they don't you know, like something you know, script-wise, we get a lot of notes, obviously. And, and certainly, it's Matt's job as the showrunner to disseminate all the notes that are coming in from production, actors, student network other producers. It's uh, a difficult job to take all of those, which are often contradictory, um, and, and figure out, uh, you know, what the best path is. So I think that's it. It's, it's like a mediator. That's what I feel like. I'm a mediator. Do you have an example of some of those notes that you get? <laughs> oh God, I can't even, um, they're just, I, I can't think of something offhand, but once again, I, it's rare that different groups don't contradict each other. You know, once again, we get notes from studio and network, Diana, sometimes the actors, directors, production, it's um, other producers. I mean, I weigh in all the time. I don't get my notes taken all the time. I don't like it, but it's uh, <laughs> it's what happens. Um, you know, we all think we're right at the end of the day. That's the problem. We all think our way is the best way. And why are we not getting our way? And so I think that is quite a masterful job to be able to take everyone's notes and, and distill it down to something that, that goes on the page. I um, I think that's one of the harder jobs, actually. My job feels fairly easy. Seems like you'd have to set aside your ego a lot. Yes. Best idea wins. That's what we say in the room anyway, normally. Well, I heard, speaking of Karen Bailey, um, she she get, told me an um, interesting story about how you guys pitched the show to stars. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you got this show up um, with Ron and how that pitch with... Um, with Karen and, and everyone at Stars happened um, with, with Outlander being picked up? Yeah, well, we, um, I mean, I don't want to bore you with the long lead-up story, but we um, pitched it around town, basically. And as you know, at the time, there were eight books, or no, seven books, I guess, at the time. Um, and they're huge. I mean, all of Diana's books are are really long. <laughs> and um, so everywhere we go, we just bring in the entire stack of books and we just put it on the table just to be like, look at all this amazing material we have. Like, we're not going to run out. It's, we'll all probably be dead before we get through all this material type of thing. So, um, and actually of all the places we pitched this, and we pitched it to HBO, Showtime, all of those kind of normal people around town, Stars was the only place we went to that not only um, were they obviously the most interested and were willing to do the books as they were, and they weren't asking us to go off book, but they had all read the first book before we went there, which is so impressive because these books are once again, quite long and um, we're all quite busy and, and most people don't have time to do that. So from the get go, we kind of knew that was the perfect place to be. Cause they also didn't want us to, they were like, some places were like, well, you're going to veer off books. Right. And we're like, no, what's the point of doing these books if we're not going to stick to them? So I don't know if that answered your question or if it was the kind of how it came to be outlander part of it. Yeah, um, I, I'm. I'd be just secondhand recounting what she said. She, she what I remember, she said something like, um, "Ron came in and said, here's your series,' and dumped down a whole bunch of books <laughs> on the table." <laughs> um, before I go any further into the story, do you want to elaborate on what what that was like? That well, no, I think it was probably, hopefully, a little more eloquent than uh, <laughs> here it is. 
um, Ron's slightly more, um, but it really was. I mean, that's kind of what I was saying. It was like just literally an individual way showing exactly how much material we had and, and how much we could do with it and, um, and that, what a large canvas we had to work with. I don't honestly remember much beyond that. I wonder what, um, I'd have to ask Karen about that, what else went on in that meeting. Maybe we'll have to ask Karen one day. Mal, you said one time in um in a in a interview you said with the Hollywood oh Report, you said <laughs> Oh God. You, you, I don't know if that's not the quote, but um <laughs> you said we try very hard to keep an historical perspective and try not to bring too much of a contemporary look on Outlander. I think all all makes sense, but maybe that doesn't make much sense anymore. We live in a very different place. It's 2020. We've come We've got like the we've got Black Lives Matter movement. We've had the Me Too movement. I'm wondering if your sentiments have shifted in any way with this tricky thing of balancing the tension between uh, fidelity to the source material and and the ex- expectations of your audience, and at the same time being conscious and responsive to feelings and, and the attitudes of the day. I mean, we've seen other studios how they've responded to this. So Disney, for example, have recently cast uh, a woman of color in in the role of Ariel. Um, Marvel cast Anthony Mackie as uh, Captain America, who's going to be play Captain America. And I'm wondering what you, your opinion is on this. Is like, do you think, for example, like if you were to cast Outlander in 2020, we could have, see a, you know, a, a person of color playing Jamie Fraser, for example? How do, how are you adapting to this? Yeah, I mean, I think if we were just starting out, my answer might be different. You know what I mean? If we were just about to cast this, and you know, I, I think. All these changes, however painful right now, um, that people are going through, I think I'm so optimistic about where we're going. I feel for me that this is a real tipping point in our history, whereas before I felt like, you know, things have happened. Certainly I was in Los Angeles for the Rodney King riots and what happened to Rodney King. And, and I don't feel like the shift happened then, like I feel like it's happening now, which I think is, for me, so uplifting in so many ways. And I think for us, you know, uh, Matt and I have had a lot of conversations about things that we want to do to try to make changes. And, and I'd rather our actions speak uh, for us than I, I, I'm very sensitive to the fact that um, so many people are talking about this and, and coming out in support of Black Lives Matter, which I think is so important. But I think our actions are even more important. I think it's easy to, on Instagram or Twitter, um, show your support, and we all should. But I think it's what we do down the line that's going to be the most important. And I think um, internally, and um, there are a lot of changes we'd like to make and we'll do so as we go forward. This might be different if we were just casting Outlander right now. I don't know what my opinion would be there. You know, we're going into our sixth season. Um, things are set. You know, we are trying to follow Diana's books, which is a work of fiction, obviously, but um, based on a real time in history. Um And I do think, you know, we'll still do the same thing. I don't know. I think we, I'm not sure if we would have done something different, perhaps maybe if we were back um, in the stories we told in season four, where there was more an emphasis on being at Joe Costa's plantation, where things were so painful for Claire and and there was so much, so many issues of slavery. Um, Because I do think we felt that it was important to show, um, not sugarcoat that, you know, we didn't go as far as we could have, but we felt like there was a brutality to it that some people complained about. But quite honestly, I think you do have to sometimes show things in that way. Um, just like I wouldn't want people to to say the Holocaust never existed or, or certain things never existed. I think it is important to show things as they truly happened. Um, same as I kind of feel about the Me Too movement right now. I don't think Outlander is about the Me Too movement. I think it's about showing a his period in time where Unfortunately, women were not seen in the same light as men were. And it wasn't right, but that's what happened. And I think going back and changing that history is wrong in some ways because it's saying that didn't happen. It's not reminding people where we can be again if we don't change our actions. I think it's important to have a a person like Claire Frazier or um, Brianna to show that these people, these women who are from a certain time are now placed in this time and are, are being active in a way that women couldn't be as active in that time. But you know, certain other characters, I don't think you'd want them to be so outspoken in a way that seems different at time because we do want to show that time in a realistic way. And other projects we do, I think we'll, we'll show in different ways that, you know, hopefully we can make a difference in the world and, and a difference to 
all of our communities and and show our support in other ways. I wanted to say I really do do agree with what what you were saying I, I, emphatically. I think um, there's a quote I can't remember who who said it, but you know um, history is important because without learning uh, learning about history, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past, right? And um, there's obviously a fictional element to Outlander, but there's an historical one, and we can't just um, erase our history. I think there has it's a very, it's a very good learning potential, and, it, and we have a a duty there to you respect those things. And I think Outlander has done a really good job of portraying um, uh, the horrors of the past. And I think, um, I don't know, it's, it's a very, very tough thing to negotiate in this time. No, it's true. I mean, we haven't been perfect for sure. I mean, looking back, there are tons of things I'm sure we we could have or would have changed. It's, it's hard to look back and, you know, I think we can only look forward and, and kind of figure out what we're going to do as we go. Uh, Outlander is, is in a sixth season now, which in, in TV years means this, this creative baby of yours is, you know, well and truly left home. It's um, blamed you for all its problems and, you know, asks you to do its dirty laundry every now and then. Um, and you've said many times we'll, we'll keep making this as long as Diana keeps writing it. Um, but again, times have changed. We're all worried about the future. And in the light of the challenges facing um, film and TV world from from COVID, do you still maintain that same sense of hope and optimism about the future of Outlander and our industry. And can you maybe explain the logistical challenges of keeping a show running this long and especially now in this COVID world? Yeah, I mean, I continue to say that as long as Diana is writing these books, we'll continue on, you know, how much longer everyone wants to do it, I don't know. And and certainly, you know, in book nine, which is coming out soon, I can't remember how old um, Jamie and Claire are, but they're getting up there. Um, you know, <laughs> um, so, I mean, certainly we might run into some issues at that point, but, um, you know, we are actively talking about continuing doing these seasons. Um, it's certainly something that we're talking about with stars and Sony, obviously with everything that's going on right now, um, everything's been a little slowed down. Um, we are going to be shooting season six, um, that has been slowed down as well. Um, you know, we will come back once we feel like it's safe to do so for our crew and our cast. Um, you know, we don't have the kind of show, unfortunately, that can be COVID friendly. Uh, that, that's something that a lot of studios are talking about. And, and some shows have the luxury to do that. Uh, we do not. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the least COVID friendly show ever. It means that um, maybe there's no kissing, there's no interaction, there's, no, um, there's not a lot of actors and extras. Um, our doesn't sound apparently no, at all, does it? It sounds pretty lonely. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the kind of show where you only want one guy that's walking down, down a lonely road. Um, so <laughs> honestly, we, we, it's been a conversation that's been happening since, since everyone kind of shut down, but, um, we're still here and I think we'll still be here. Um, so hopefully, if, you know, we'll get a couple more seasons going I love and, uh, and, uh, hopefully we'll be making this for a long time. You never know what other things could come up. Lord John, uh, various other, you know, uh, the Tryon show. Who knows? Exactly, exactly. You know, it's hey, both sound very COVID friendly. Tryon show, what? <laughs> it's COVID friendly, probably. He's just sitting in his office all day. Well, this is it. <laughs> Although he wouldn't want to be in New York right now. So, like, yeah, here we go in New York. Oh, hang on. <laughs> but not a lot of kissing there. Not a lonely man walking down the street. That sounds. I could see that the Tryon show right now. Hey, the three of us could start producing it. Totally, I think we've all proved right now. We've got. Exactly. We can do it right here. What a producer is. Yeah, exactly. Okay, wonderful. Well, Meryl, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time uh, and your and your insight. So, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to get to, to get to chat to you, to get to to get to know you a little bit as well. So, um, well, from all of us at Outcast, well, me and David, obviously. Thank you very, very much indeed for your time. Well, thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Hello, and now we have reached the uh, part of the show where we answer our listeners' questions. Um, it's going to be me and you at the moment, Meryl. Dave, I've actually sent David out for a frappuccino. So, would you do you want would you want anything? Um, no, but I honestly, when I think of David, I don't think of him as a frappuccino guy. That's for me. That's for me. I think he's going to have like a kind of skinny mocha latte. Yes. Um, very like light. Yeah, very light on that, and then an egg white omelette, and then he's done. Um, but he's, he's got quite big hands, so he can carry quite a lot. So if there is anything, let me <laughs> good, let me know. 
Good. Okay. We'll just keep you uh, keep you informed. Um, so uh, we're gonna we've got a couple of letters that we're gonna we're gonna read out and some good fun ones. But before we begin, I was going to ask you, what is the oddest thing that anyone has ever suggested to you in regards to the show? Now, obviously, there's a lot of people who've read the books; they know the story. Um, but there's a lot of audience that haven't read the books. So, have you had any odd suggestions as to what should happen? Hmm. I don't know if I've had any odd suggestions, um, really, because I, I feel like most of our hardcore fans are, are book fans. You know, a lot of people do um, have suggested that Sam Hewen play his son, William, um, as he goes grows older. Um, obviously, probably coming off of the fact that uh, the great Tobias Menzies um, played dual roles. Um, yes. You know, and, and obviously this season we also have um uh the twins being played by the same actor as well paul so um but you know what that's that would be very <laughs> difficult one um the, the reason it obviously worked with both the twins and with um blackjack and and frank is because they are literally described as as um well one being identical and, and two frank and jack um looking very similar um, or almost identical. So that worked, you know, with Sam playing dual roles, not only would it be very difficult to do because Sam is obviously in, in quite a bit as Jamie, um, but also, you know, um, Sam and his son shouldn't look exactly like him while, while Sam is, is quite young looking. Um, <laughs> could he play 19? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, um, you know, uh, just get your hands on Scorsese's Age of Fire exactly. for the for the Irishman. Well, maybe that's, that's the maybe that's the key. That's the other thing. People think that's so easy, but um, you know we did that a little with Duncan Lacroix um, in Murtaugh this season, and it's unbelievably expensive. So um, I'm thinking maybe you should play um, Jamie's son, uh, William. Why not? We don't see Tryon right. again. Exactly. Come on. <laughs> there's a, there's an opening. There's an opening here. Um, well, we have actually got a couple of suggestions from a couple of listeners. Mm -hmm. So I was going to run these past you and uh, see if any, see if any of these could float. Some of them are brilliant. I have to say <laughs> some, well, let's just wait and see this one. This one's from Kathy in, uh, in, in St. Paul in Minnesota. And she's asking, will Murta make a return perhaps as a zombie? And then she goes on to say, maybe a long lost brother or a relative. Although she does say that the zombie is her best idea. Um, any, any, uh, any, any, any road, any road in that? Oh my God. I love the idea of zombie Murtaugh. I mean, it's, it's brilliant actually. And I mean, a zombie Murtaugh just showing up at dinner parties, um, just showing up on the ridge occasionally. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. I, think it's great. I will talk to the writers and Matt Roberts immediately. Throw it in, just throw it in, <laughs> just see. You know, put it. it in their good hands. I'm sure they can do it. Okay. Now, John in, in Manchester in England uh, asks about possible spin-offs. Um, and he's got a few suggestions for titles. Okay. Uh, one, Jamie's Jamie's Kitchen. Uh, and the other one, Frasier, uh, which I think both those titles have been taken. Um, and the other one was Claire's Accessories, um, which actually I think is more like a home improvement show. Um, it's also um, a shop over here that sells earrings. So I don't think John has particularly, particularly done his homework Doing on, his research. on that well, one. Can we go back to the second suggestion, Frasier? I mean, is that just an all-encompassing? Is that about anything specific, or it's just Fraser? I, I think he's just. I think he's. I think he's working on the assumption that because he's called Jamie Fraser, <laughs> that they could do a show called Fraser. <laughs> Um, maybe at a barroom situation, maybe with a slight kind of time hitch thing again, but he ends up in Boston, um, sitting at the end of a bar wearing a kilt and answering and answering questions. Yeah, <laughs> answering I, questions. It's actually quite a brilliant. You just see Jamie at the end of the bar. Sam giving his giving him uh, suggestions over beer. Yeah, exactly. And relationship advice, which would I mean perfect. It's perfect, really. Um, he's actually got some others, which these are brilliant. Okay. Now I think you should get a pen. Because these are extra these are exceptional. Uh, are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. First one, Richard's rankings, where Richard Rankin organizes his favorite things in order of preference and size. <laughs> I love that it's not my preference, but it's also size. It's size. And by the way, yeah. I almost want to suggest that to Richard because I, I really I feel like he would love that. <laughs> I mean, Richard's rankings. This is honestly, this is that. This is that. I'm sure they do this at Bravo. I feel like I want to um, hire this person. 
This one is brilliant. Helter Skelton, a show <laughs> where Sophie Skelton rides the world's biggest roller coasters. <laughs> Oh my God, brilliant. And I'm sure Sophie I mean, that, would love that. It's just like we could send her, you know what? Men in Kilts has nothing on Sophie's Helter Skelton and going Helter around Skelton. to different, uh, different venues to ride roller coasters. Yeah. Yeah. I think the best part of that is that she really hates it, <laughs> uh, doesn't want to do it, but is contractually obliged to oh, get yeah. on the roller coaster. <laughs> Um, and I think there should be one at least in somewhere somewhere in, in Eastern Europe that you would go, oh, I do not want to go on this. This seems very rickety. This seems very rickety. Exactly. I didn't realize I could still be made of wood. <laughs> Things like that. Excellent. Uh, and then the last one, which is a bit which is a bit of a dark one, but I like it nonetheless, is called For Whom the Bell Tolls. And that's where John Bell visits old age homes across the Isle of Mull, <laughs> which I think bit niche. I feel like call me crazy, but that's maybe the one I'm least interested in. <laughs> that's crazy. I don't know. I don't know why. I just I mean endless. Surely the endless fun. Endless fun. Endless fun. Endless fun. But how do you find how do you find shows to make? Um do people come to you with say an idea, or does certain people come to you, or do you just happen across it somewhere and you go, ah, that's it. It depends. I mean, certainly with that, the world of Outlander, obviously we've got a lot of material at our fingertips. So um, there's quite a wealth of stuff to kind of talk about, you know, in terms of a Lord John series or, or whatever it may be. But um, in terms of outside Outlander, um, it's a variety of ways. Either sometimes um, I will read books and, and think, God, this would be a great series. Or, you know, um, sometimes Ron and, and um Ron and I, we get uh, different things that are submitted to us. It depends with uh, whatever studio we're with. Things are submitted to them and then they come to us. So it just depends Or you read an article or, you know, you hear something on the radio. Uh, there's so many different ways. So it's it's a variety of different um, different avenues by which uh, we, we find material. Okay. And have you had any real left field suggestions for instance, I was doing a little bit of research on strange TV shows, and there's a show here which was made in 1983, and I can't even be. It made it did they they made 13 episodes of this show. I should want to say that now they made 13 episodes of this. It's called Dial an Ape. It's a sitcom. <laughs> it's a sitcom about an orangutan that becomes a political advisor, <laughs> and it ran for 13 episodes. That is amazing. But I mean, that, isn't I mean, that the world of reality TV we're in right now? That anything could be an episode? That anything could be an episode of television or a series? I mean, you and I talk, you're doing a podcast, you and David. Yeah. Did you ever think people would want That's to true. listen to you two? Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> week in, week out, thank you. But yeah, it's extraordinary. Like there's, there was a show over here called The Farm and they had Vanilla, Vanilla, Vanilla Ice on it, um, who then became a farmer. Uh, and had to milk cows and other things you do with bulls, which was a very strange thing to see um, in the in the sort of late nineties. Vanilla Ice down on the farm, very strange. That seems so, kind of happen. like John Bell going to visit uh, people all day jobs across the Isle of Mull. There could only be two, I'm imagining. So it's it's a short it's a short window. Um, but is there is there a particular sort of passion project that you have had? Like, for instance, you know, many producers and directors have a sort of passion project that, that at some point they would like to do. Either the time isn't right or it, it just hasn't happened. Like, for instance, you know, Barry Levinson worked on toys for 20 years before he did it with Robin Williams. Um, and obviously Terry Gilliam, someone who I adore, spends years and years to try and get his vision out there i mean do you have a, a passion project that you think at some point i would really like to make this well actually outlander was that passion project i mean i didn't have to wait 20 oh, wow. years to make it but um you know um 10 years ago or whatever it was when matt roberts first introduced me to the books i immediately thought oh i would love to this was my idea of a great tv series it's got something for everyone it's got love great scope adventure um it just was right up there with something that I thought, oh, I would love to make this. This would be my idea of a perfect project. And I've been fortunate enough to have 
gotten to make that project. You know what I mean? Not many people get to make the project that they have a great passion for. I'm currently searching for my next passion. I mean, Outlander is is my great love at this point, but eventually it will end. Um, I don't know when. I, I'm hoping we can do this for a few more years, but um, I'm in the search for the next great project. Um, you've certainly thrown out a few key ones uh, that I, I'm Thank definitely going to be thinking about. <laughs> you should. Uh, all I ask is a finder's fee. I think that's quite fair um, for some of these quite exceptional um, titles there. That's uh, that's what I'm going to bring up. When you look for projects, uh, are they themed? Like you've done a lot of sci-fi. So are you looking for something sci- with that bent or are you going to just kind of looking for a really good story that has to be told? I actually do the opposite. I find so many people, because I'm Ron and I are producing partners, so many people bring us sci-fi stories. And in fact, I think that's how Outlander came about, is that I was looking for to do something that was outside of that. Because people think Ron is a sci-fi guy, and he is, and he loves it. But he's, he's capable of doing so much more. Um, and I think what I bring to the table is projects that are kind of outside what people normally think he would do. Um, so that's why I always have my eye on those kind of things that are outside the sci-fi realm, even though I enjoy sci-fi. I mean, I love Star Wars, you know, Star Trek. I love all of those things, but, um, I think there's so many different kinds of projects out there to do. And I think, um, it's great for, you know, our company to be seen to do, um, a diverse roster of programs, not just in the sci-fi world, but as well outside of it. No, great. I mean, for instance, uh, one of the letters we had here, Mandy in Florida wants to know if Outlander in space could be a thing. Um, oddly, quite a few people have actually asked about Outlander in space. So I'm just saying don't rule it out just yet. Well, just, we uh, well, we do have another project right now called For All Mankind, which um, is revolves around the NASA program. And several people have, have offered up this idea of doing a mashup, a little kind of crossover For All Mankind uh, Outlander mashup. I don't know how that would work. But uh, <laughs> could we see Mur- zombie Murtaugh in space? Brilliant. There you go. There you go. These things are, honestly, it's all going to come together beautifully. Dovetail. It's going to dovetail beautifully. The show almost writes itself. It, it does. Um, have you ever, and this is, this is something I, I, I find very interesting, have you ever pretended to do a different job or even pretended to be someone else to get out of a hard sell from say an actor or a writer or a director. Oh, um, I don't. Have you ever sort of said, "Sorry," you know, someone comes over and says, "Oh my, this is this is Jackson, my friend. He's a he's an actor," and you've gone, "Oh God, another actor." Um, actually, I I, I work in this instead. <laughs> I'm not who you think I am. No, that's we look the same, but it's not that. Bad. I have not. I don't know if I uh, have ever done that, but I will say it's. Um, it is always helpful because obviously I live in the United States. I spend a good deal of time in Scotland, but as you know, we are not a SAG show. We are an equity show. Um, so it is very helpful when um, I'm in the States and any American actor comes up to me and, uh, you know, asks to be an outlander. And it, it's an easy answer to say, well, actually we're not SAG. So that's not even a possibility. So, and in the UK, honestly, no one even knows who I am. <laughs> See, that's good. That's good. I mean, not to blow my own trumpet, um, I actually once tried to pass myself off as a semi-professional BMX champion. Um, the only problem I did have was I actually was talking to to someone who was a BMX champion, which you really think, how on earth is that a thing? But there you go. Why? Sometimes they catch up with you. Why? Sometimes they catch up with you. That profession of all professions. Because I thought it was so random that I could get away with it. It sounds quite cool. <laughs> Semi-professional BMX champion. People will go, wow, I don't know a lot about it, which is a good thing because you're lying. Um, and, it, and it sounds like uh, it sounds like sounds like you're cool. Sounds like a cool person to be around. Not, of course, if you're then meeting someone who is a professional BMX champion. And they say, oh, amazing. Have you got the new uh, that new spoke thing? What about the new pedal? Are you going, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> don't even that's, own a bike. But that's an actor thing. I don't think most normal people go around pretending they're other things. Do you know what I mean? Like most normal people are not passing themselves off as other people. Um, it's actors who think of these kind of things, who think, you know what, I'm going to be so-and-so today. Yeah, that is true. That is true. And I think I would have made a very good BMX, semi-professional BMX uh, BMX champion. I, I, I can just see it. I can see it. There's a show there somewhere almost. There is. I tell you, there really is. Um, and the last suggestion that somebody had was uh, Outlander Underwater. Aqualander. 
Aqualander. Oh, brilliant. Um, you know, yeah. I, I have not thought of that. Um, we have thought of mm. Petlander, however. Um, it's a show, uh, uh, I think it'd be fascinating to do an animated show of all the animals on Outlander. And uh, from their nice. perspective, Petlander. Oh, yes, very nice. Very And, and very COVID-friendly. Uh, it, it would just be it animals. Is. And animated. And they could get as close as they want. Nice. I like it. I like it. Well, actually, we're going to we're going to unpack uh, the the underwater one. Um, as I think genuinely, I think I think it could have legs. It's been sent in by uh, a Tom Dorney. Sounds very credible. Sounds very credible indeed. Um, but not to be too overconfident. He says it's the next Emmy nominated juggernaut. So um, just going to see how this one how this one plays out. But he says it's a masterwork um, and it's going to be huge. So here goes. So his idea for this particular show, uh, the lead. A handsome early 40s Englishman. Interesting. A playful glint. Dances about his swarthy features. Um, accented by a luscious moustache. I mean, don't know who, <laughs> who on earth that could play that. I mean, that, who on earth could that be? Uh, he goes on. So under the ocean, sea levels have, have, uh, have risen. New York is now underwater. But people have learned to adapt. And a brave Scottish community, spurned from the above world, now live in harmony under a large bubble dome called Big Dome. But wait. Things start happening and a new person has joined. Saviour or destroyer, we don't know yet. Our furiously handsome Englishman has arrived. He's got some crazy ideas. So do they join him or do they remain? It's He has, he has said the pitch will be it's Waterworld meets Chinatown meets Apocalypse Now. Well, I mean, you lost me at Waterworld a little bit only because, as we all know, uh, a slightly problematic film. But um, can we... Can we go back a little bit? Can we just, we just rewind a little bit? Because uh, yes, of course. Let's just start off with um, our protagonist, uh, mm. <laughs> this English fellow. Um, yes, you know, just starting off there, this whole Scottish-themed show um, and having an Englishman as a protagonist um, is interesting, very interesting. And I'm I'm wondering where this idea, you know, came from, um, the origins of it. Uh, then I'd love to talk about the idea of Big Dome as a name. Uh, <laughs> For the place that, is that something perhaps a, a child thought up of or where did that name come from? I, I think I think this person is has has a searing intelligence. And uh, I think maybe it maybe at about four or five years or maybe never in his lifetime, um, his true genius, much like Van Gogh, uh, will come will come to fruition. Uh, again, but uh, I think that's I think there's a lot to play with there. Oh, my God. Um, it sounds it sounds almost on the level of Aquaman. Yeah, Brilliant. and he wants to call it Tryon. There is the law, and there is what is done. And I think that that's that's amazing. That's a winner right there. Boom. Absolutely. Can I just say though about that line? Uh, there is law, and there there is what is done. I actually say that in my in my real life all the time. <laughs> Everyone, you really? calls, yes. There are a couple lines from Outlander that I find that I just kind of throw out. Uh, that is one of them. Well, I am honored. I am honoured that that is uh, that that is the case, but it is a great line. It is. It's, uh, I don't it's take a quite very with, good line. Quite with the uh, aplomb you do, um, or you did in the show, but uh, yeah, I like to throw it out there. If nothing else, we're going to push forward with Tryon, uh, the underwater Aqualander um, that uh, that is. So you know, a lot has come from this. A lot of a uh, lot of great great stuff moving forward. I, I think if I was Brilliant. to rank these, though, in terms of uh, preference and size, I'd probably put Richard's rankings maybe first. Oh, yeah. I think <laughs> oh, I think you're right. Although followed by just Helter Skelton or whatever. That Helter Skelton. Just to see her face when she is <laughs> just brought, to, just like, not again, please, not again. And like half the show would just be her saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And they're just trying to convince her, showing her photos. Yeah, you know, things that are. Oh, I'm not sure I'd rank um, the Big Dome Aqua Outlander and the John Bell, <laughs> the John Bell series. I'm, I'm not sure how I'd rank this. I'll tell you something. Two two out of four is a is a is a win, and I'm ha very happy with that. Meryl, thank you so much for your time. It really has been an absolute pleasure. Um, you take away a lot of good ideas, which is fantastic. And um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I speak for David as well that says thank you uh, so much for your, for your, for your time.
Well, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for including me in uh, all of these uh, fan letters and questions. Uh, it was fascinating. And I, I feel like I have so much new material to, to work on at this point. I'll loop you in on the emails, man. I'll let you worry about that. <laughs> I'll okay. send you your yeah, 5%. So perfect. It's a done deal. <laughs> Wonderful. Meryl, thank you. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Outcasts. Please remember to rate, subscribe and leave a review as it all helps. Follow us on our Instagram page at outcast.podcast for all the latest updates. Or you can send us an email at outcastspodcastshow at gmail.com. Every week, we shall select a question from one of our listeners to answer on the show. The theme music is composed by Kieran Ledwidge. All views and opinions expressed on the show are our own and have no affiliation with the series of books written by Diana Gabaldon or the Sony Stars television show Outlander. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. Although I did have a ham sandwich earlier. So. See you next time. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.